Okay, it's Friday the 2nd of October. Welcome to Westminster Watch. I'm Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck, and I'm joined by my colleague, Ben Worthy. So in this podcast, our plan is to look at issues that are of interest to students of British politics uh, in general, and we speak to the themes of our undergraduate module, Contemporary British Politics. So we're going to look at two issues this week, and I'll hand over to Ben to introduce the first one. Well, the first issue we're going to talk about is Syria and specifically the possibility of a vote by the UK Parliament on military action in Syria. As you remember, there's already been a vote on military action in Syria in 2013 where MPs rejected a government motion to take military action. And in a very narrow vote, uh, 285 to 272, uh, the House of Commons decided not to support military action. Now, um, just oversimplifying a little bit, what was a very complex conflict has gotten even more complicated in the past few days with the intervention of Russia. And I just wanted to look forward to see what could happen in the event of another planned vote on military action in the House of Commons in the coming weeks. Because, of course, it's actually a very complicated situation with the new parties and the new leaders and uh, made more complicated by the fact that I think the people who in charge of party discipline, the whips, actually have very little control uh, of what might happen. If I can just sketch out a little bit the, the sort of um, difficulties here. On the one hand, you've got the Conservative Party uh, under David Cameron. Um, now, most of them, their attitudes towards military action are unclear, but there is a current of thought on the backbenches that want to hear more details about why exactly Britain should intervene and what exactly it would be designed to achieve. And they're led by uh, an MP named Julian Lewis, who gave a key speech in the last debate in 2013 and is chair of um, a select committee. Against them is the Labour Party, of course, and here things get even more complicated because uh, it seems that the new leader, Jeremy Corbyn, is generally against military action in Syria, The Labour Party's view within Parliament is unclear, but it's quite likely that what would happen was there'd be a free vote and there would be no party discipline for Labour. So Labour MPs could vote for or against as they wish rather than as their party tells them. For the other parties, we don't know. I presume that the SNP would be against military action in most circumstances, although Nicola Sturgeon hasn't hasn't ruled out support. And the Liberal Democrats last time, nine of them uh, rebelled when there was... 57 MPs, so it's possible that they could uh, go either way as well. So, a very complicated picture if David Cameron decides to try and have another vote on whether Britain um, can authorise military action in Syria. I guess what interests me about the case of Syria from a kind of domestic politics point of view is the very fact that we're talking about Parliament having any role, because traditionally this has uh, fallen under the royal prerogative, right? So this is a power of the crown exercised through the executive with very little role for parliament. In other words, it's really up to the prime minister of the day and his or her advisors to decide upon military action. What we've seen uh, in recent years, particularly since the Iraq war and the very controversial votes surrounding this, is the emergence, the very British emergence of a messy set of constitutional norms that suggests that Parliament should be given some sort of role in this area. And I say it's typically British because it's not written down. There's a real reluctance to write it down and a real confusion about who could even begin to write it down. So Cameron, when he was in opposition 
did talk about the idea of codifying some sort of war powers for Parliament, right? Um, very much Cameron seeing himself as the heir to Blair, but also the kind of you know successor to Blair who would learn from Blair's mistakes in this case, having a more accountable approach to foreign policy. And under the coalition government between 2010 and 2015, we saw a fascinating mess about how to deliver that commitment. It didn't go in the, in the coalition agreement, but there was some discussion about whether these war powers and the role of the parliament in relation to war might be codified. And the most they came up with really was a statement by Sir George Young, then leader of the House, that a convention has developed in the House, he said, that before troops are committed, the House should have the opportunity to debate the matter. We propose to observe that convention, except where there is an emergency and such action would not be appropriate. So it's fascinating for me that uh, the most they could talk about was the vague existence of these norms in relation to Parliament. Um, in the case of Libya, as I understand it, um, the UK launched action before the parliamentary vote had been taken. So there was an, yeah. an acceptance that they would have had to go to Parliament, but at this point, military action had been launched. But this caused some problems, and so there was an acceptance that the next time round, and the next time that turned to be Syria, yeah. there would be a vote on these issues. So um, what's your sense of how the role of Parliament is emerging in all of this? Well, it's, like we said, it's complicated. Um, it seems to be that if the opportunity is there, Parliament can be made and asked to vote on military action. And then it gets even more complicated in two ways. Firstly, David Cameron was very keen to be very explicit in 2013 that the vote, that he would abide with the vote of the House of Commons. Now, what he's trying to say there in the subtext is he doesn't always have to. So it might be that a prime minister can just use the vote as a kind of consultative issue. Even um, some of the votes over the Iraq in 2003, it wasn't entirely clear how consultative or, or whether they were going to be binding on the prime minister. And interestingly, it's still in the gift of the prime minister to decide what he or she then does with that vote. Um, and then it gets all the more complicated, as you said, with uh, George Young's comment, that uh, unless it's an emergency, and we all know how successive US presidents have got round um, congressional authorization of military action by declaring various sorts of emergencies or, or categorizing conflicts in various sorts of ways. So in the future, it can, of course, hinge on, um, on what exactly is happening militarily, or at least what people say is happening uh, militarily. It's, it's very interesting. We seem to have a situation where Parliament is almost responsible for authorising conflict, except in these grey areas where it isn't. Right, but it's hard to imagine an area that's not grey in international yes. relations these days. Yeah. There's a great piece in the British Journal of Politics and International Relations in 2014 by James Strong, who talks about the emergence of a parliamentary prerogative in yeah. this area. And he kind of... Uh, complicates in a really fascinating way the politics of this because he points out that you know we do see this tension between the royal prerogative and the parliamentary prerogative but he also says that there's another constitutional norm emerging which is in relation to the United Nations Security Council mm -hmm. and that the difference between Libya and Syria he argues in this paper is that you had UN backing for Libya which meant that the vote in parliament was a formality and of course you didn't have this in Syria which um, you know 
complicates the politics of this, and yeah. this is, necessitates the need for a parliamentary vote. And that's that's well worth a read. Um, other things I'd recommend to read are two um, reports issued in the last few years by um, select committees in Parliament. The first is the House of Lords Constitution Committee. They published a report in July 2013 when they argued that they didn't think Parliament's role should be formalised in this area, mm. that it's too tricky. And then the House of Commons Political and Constitutional Reform Committee shot back a year later. These things take time. And they said that they respectfully disagree with the House of Lords' uh, uh, ideas on this. So there's a nice battle going on behind the scenes about the idea of legitimacy and accountability yep. in this area. And then there's, I suppose, just as a, a, a few final thoughts. One is, is a bit more about the kind of what Lyndon Johnson said is the essence of politics, which is about learning to count. And... The reason that the 2013 Syria vote didn't come off seems to be because the government failed to get enough people to vote. It was a simple question of having enough MPs in there because it was a very close vote. Famously, two ministers were in a soundproof room and didn't hear the division bell. And and it was a question of kind of brutal party organisation more than anything else. Now, if it's turned into a free vote on the Labour side, that gets even more complicated because nobody will really know who's going to break in in what direction? And there was 30 Conservative rebels last time. Just taking a step back, and I think the whole question of uh, parliamentary prerogative in this area is fascinating. Isn't it interesting how the ghost of Iraq haunts every vote that's happened ever since? It was said in uh, Phil Cowley's great book on uh, Tony Blair and Parliament called The Rebels. It was said that before the, the biggest vote in Iraq, which was the biggest uh, rebe- parliamentary rebellions by backbenchers ever, um, that Tony Blair and uh, his wife were forced to phone round MPs and say, do you want regime change in Baghdad or Downing Street? It came so close that they had to persuade people through the possibility of um, Blair's resignation. And it's interesting how the issues of the UN, the issues of whether there's a plan in place, who's going to put that plan in place, that we can't just intervene militarily, but there needs to be some sort of process. Interestingly, uh, Julian Lewis and some others were asking if but will the process, the peace process that comes into place now be controlled by Russia? Which will be a huge question. Um, and I find it fascinating, particularly with Parliament, how things that have happened in the past continue to flow into things that happen in the future. I wonder how many wars it will take until we've kind of forgotten the influence of Iraq on this. I love the idea of MPs in a soundproof room. It sounds like no better metaphor <laughs> worthy of Paul Auster. Okay, so we, I wanted to move to our second topic. And our second topic is John McDonnell's speech at the Labour Party conference. John McDonnell being shadow chancellor and also um, an alumni of the Department of Politics at Birkbeck, whose career we're following uh, with much fascination at the moment. This was a, a big speech and a fascinating speech. And I guess I wanted to think about it on a few levels. But just to begin with a kind of political level, McDonnell gave a very kind of professional speech and surprisingly professionalised and there was a lot of talk about using auto cues and, and even the shape of the speech if you look at it on the text is very Blairite with its one sentence paragraphs and it's, it's broken up in a way that just kind of struck me as a sign that um, already the kind of amateurism of, of Corbyn's revolution is beginning to uh, change slightly MacDonald build this as a speech about straight talking and he kind of returned to this notion several times. It seemed to me to be anything but, right? It seemed to me that he was not straight talking but talking to quite disparate audiences. One of those audiences, of course, was the base, right? In this case, the the, uh, the left of the Labour Party that 
catapulted Corbyn and Macdonald to power. And there was plenty in this speech for the base. There was references to the 1%, of course, that being part of the slogan of the Occupy movement. There's a sense in which new Labour is being occupied by, uh, by some of the left at the moment in a fascinating way. A reference to neoliberalism, very much the language of the left, the way they talk about economic ideas. There was uh, an extraordinary sign-off on... The, there was a one-word paragraph at the end of the speech, solidarity. Um, ben, what were your thoughts about the speech? I thought... I thought it was very interesting how they uh, they did the, the, the classic thing that um, that people do before exams when they lower everybody's expectations by saying I probably won't do very well here and then in the hope that they kind of outperform. Um, also, just picking up on what you said was very interesting, that it was in some senses a very traditional politician's speech of the kind of new variant that have developed over the last two decades. There was kind of personal stories... Uh, weaved in there, there was the eye-catching bit that would that would get the headlines in the newspaper, such as um, the tax evasion uh, promise, which was I, I, can't, I, I seem to think about a third of the way through to kind of wake people up and uh, get people's attention. Um, there was quite a lot of uh, policy ideas in there, but some interesting kind of comments about Britain living within its means, um, but also more radical ideas mixed in with it. Um, I think it was very ambitious in not only was it saying that the current government policy on the economy is wrong, but that the underlying ideas themselves are wrong-headed. And here it's not just a kind of challenge to the, the, what the government has been doing for the last five years, but in a sense, all of our thoughts about how economics has worked probably since Thatcher, if not um, before. So... It was it was very strong and, and very ambitious, and I did love the socialist flourish at the end with the, with the solidarity. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was the big idea in all of this, and the the best articulated idea. The idea was that um, Macdonald said we need to be straightforward and clear that we're tackling the deficit, but tackling it in a different way. Tackling it not through austerity, but rather by emphasising growth. And I think that was a good point well made and it needed to be made it showed that they'd learned the lessons of Ed yeah. Miliband where Ed Miliband fumbled uh, many times when it came to the deficit either not mentioning it or not accepting the idea that Labour had to at least acknowledge that on its watch government borrowing was higher than it perhaps should have been under their own fiscal rules that being I think different from the fact that inevitably um, debt would go up in a financial crisis of the kind that we saw I thought the real problem in this speech uh, and it wasn't a particularly new one, I think it's familiar to opposition, is that it offered no real sense of um, how growth could be achieved. I mean, I think there was an emphasis on these magic, invisible levers of growth, um, but he didn't really offer very much in the speech about what that me meant. I think he did a good job of showing he wasn't a deficit denier, yeah. but he kind of portrayed himself a bit as a growth fantasist. You know, you talk about growth, you talk about the need to grow your way out of a deficit, but then you lead on tax increases. Right, not tax increases of the traditional sort, you know, the old idea of cracking down on tax evasion. Yeah. That's what you do when you're in trouble in terms of your ideas for revenue raising and you don't want to talk about income tax. Um, there was some serious red meat thrown there to the left on the party by talking about getting tough on Starbucks and, and Amazon. But um, where is the growth going to come from in this plan? You know, there was vague talk of expenditure, talk of development investing in infrastructure, but really not that much there. And I think there's a real bind for 
McDonnell and for Labour more generally, the fact is that growth is reasonably buoyant in this country as it stands. The problem is that debt is reasonably high, around 90%, and that's not started to shrink yet. But if we were to continue with growth, such as this, and it's a big if, um, then we will grow our way out of a deficit. And I wanted to talk also about governance terms, because that's where I thought the the, uh, speech was at its most interesting in a way. You had the politics of communicating to, on the one hand, the left, and financial markets and the broader public on the other. You had this policy discussion about growth, but you also had some really, at least to my uh, scholarly mind, interesting elements on governance. What were those elements? Well, there was talk of turning the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills into a powerful Department for Economic Development. For me, this was really about a warning shot to the Treasury. It was about saying to the Treasury, you've got to start taking your ideas seriously. You've got to be aware on some level that... um, when we're in government, we're going to want to shake up of ideas. This is very reminiscent of Thatcher in 1979, who saw the, the Treasury as terribly Keynesian and started to build her own machinery of economic policy making in 10 Downing Street with Alan Walters as her advisor. So, so um, it, the Treasury was, I guess, suspicious of this speech, was, was my guess. And they should have been suspicious when MacDonald came to the line that he was going to appoint Lord <laughs> Kerslake to conduct a review of the Treasury. I mean, this is great stuff, right? It's really saying look out, Treasury, um, you're in our sights here. There's a big question about whether or not, and we talked about it in last week's podcast, whether we might see an end to the idea of central bank independence. And we won't on the basis of this speech. What we will see, potentially, is a change to the bank's mandate to cover growth, employment and earnings. The problem with that is that the bank's mandate already covers growth. It just puts inflation first, and when inflation is dealt with, then you get to growth. Earnings are just a measure of inflation for most economists. So I think that was McDonald's way of saying, um, we are going to have some changes here, but they won't be so radical as to scare financial markets. Financial markets can be pretty comfortable with the idea that a mandate might be changed. (coughs) Different banks have different mandates, uh, and they're still independent. Um, Also, going back to last week's podcast, I talked about the Office for Budgetary Responsibility. It seems to sometimes I'm the only person who does. It's this niche kind of regulatory agency at the heart of government that oversees the public finances. In McDonald's speech, there was talk about asking the OBR to audit Labour's fiscal plans. A wonderful attempt to turn Osborne's economic watchdog against Osborne. And we'll see whether that happens. Yeah, very uh, very interesting, some of the uh, proposals that were in there. Um, other people have pointed out that his his idea of having a group of learned individuals to advising was also quite reminiscent of uh, Thatcher and her use of the uh, Institute for Economic Affairs. Um, Just on that, I mean, this is a fascinating part of the speech. When he announced this lineup, much of the jealousy of academics across the nation, I suspect, (laughs) for not making the cut, but he announced these celebrity economists, you know, very, very good economists in in, in all cases, I think, but they, they were clapped like they were celebrities. They were, they were a new type of expert who was, who was uh, also you know, very uh, popular. And I guess here we're t- talking about the likes of Thomas Piketty, Joseph Stiglitz, Simon Rand Lewis. Um, you know, th- I thought that was a sign that this is actually a little bit more than about expertise. And I'm, I'm curious, what were they really clapping exactly? You know, politician consults economists. is not normally <laughs> something you get a clap for. And Alan Walters was most certainly not clapped on to the floor of the uh, Conservative Party conference to, at any point in my memory. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting as well, just, just to reflect on something you, you mentioned, how 
how old ideas never quite go away. I mean, we had, under Wilson and, and other governments, this attempt to uh, uh, create alternative power bases to the Treasury. And his, I suppose the real ambition here and the real difficulty is this idea that austerity is a political choice. And in, in taking that position, it, it positions him in a very radical place where he could be seen not just to be challenging the government, but also, like we said, the prevailing orthodoxies. And the danger is that he can be portrayed as challenging common sense, as Margaret Thatcher would call it. I mean, these economic ideas are seen not as economic political ideas, which they are, but as the common sense and the way the world works. And I suppose the danger is that parts of this speech could be taken to be kind of fantasy, as you said, in the sense that they're they're challenging the kind of economic laws of reality. Now, we know those laws don't really exist, but when, when, when an orthodoxy is so well entrenched and it looks like it, it's reality, it can make it look like, you know, that this is a kind of a, attack on... On, on the way things are, you know, that doesn't have reality. Let me end with a question that's really been preoccupying me when I think about the Labour Party conference this week. Do you really think Corbyn is intent on power? Because there's a sense in which none of this adds up to an electable manifesto. It's a fascinating manifesto in, that's emerging. It's an, it's an extraordinarily interesting set of provocative ideas. But there's nothing in here at least according to the traditional laws of politics, that would suggest that this party can win. And yet, we do see a kind of toning down of the rhetoric. There was a, a sense in which this speech was um, set out as being not as radical as you might expect. So what's going on here? I mean, I'm torn myself between wondering whether Corbyn thinks he's going to get a few years from this and that that will be an extraordinary moment for him to put out new ideas, a lot of them, some of which might stick, and then that might be taken up by a different generation. But there's also a part of him that seems to think he might be able to win with this stuff. Mm. Although an approach that seems to be premised on nothing like we have ever seen in British politics before. Yeah. So I mean, well, what's he up to here? I mean, it may be that he believes or has an insight that the rules have changed fundamentally. Remember, this, this mythical centre ground is constantly movable and we know from the literature on policy moods that they change all the time and maybe his hope is that the centre ground you know will 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 no longer be the centre ground as somebody was um wrongly quoting andrew marr as inventing the phrase the centre cannot hold um it was william butler yates <laughs> for the record <laughs> um so it may be that he has a sense or a hope that the set he can change the conversation and change where the political centre lies. I suppose he's caught, isn't he, in leadership terms? And I'm, I'm caught between assessing him on two levels. The first thing is there's a long way to go to the next election. There's five years. Mm. That's a long time. And no party necessarily needs to set out clear ideas, but, but just set out a broader sense of where you're going. And there's a fascinating book called The Political Brain, which looks at how how people interpret what politicians say, kind of on an emotional level rather than and a symbolic level rather than ever knowing about policies. But on the other hand, to be a bit more Machiavellian, Corbyn has a very short amount of time in which to stamp his own image and idea before other people do it for him. Other people who don't support him and don't want him there do it. And so I think it's caught between this why not play the long game versus you know, the time window is closing in. And if he doesn't put a stamp on his leadership with a, you know, 
people always talk about the, the partly manufactured close four moment for Tony Blair and other things then somebody else will come along and define him for them at which time you know he'll be trapped perhaps into an image he, he doesn't want so I the short answer is I don't know <laughs> um, but it's hard to hard to decide if there's some special insight there some insight or idea going on or if you know perhaps you know as a new team in charge of a party they're just working around to getting ideas out there so lots of work for that economic advisory committee to <laughs> <Yeah>. do <laughs> Okay, thanks Ben. Stay tuned for more Westminster Watch.